These days, foes don't become friends very often. Foes don't become family members very often. Opponents don't normally become allies. Enemies don't usually become our friends. That rarely happens these days. If only there was a power of some kind that could change foes into family. If only there was something that we could do to make these opponents become a little bit more like our allies. If only the world was maybe a little bit more like elementary school. You see, back in my day when I was at St. Joseph Catholic School, there was a rivalry that always happened. There was a rivalry that always took place, and it was between us and the grade that was above us. So when we were in first grade, it was the second graders. When we were in fourth grade, it was the fifth graders. Well, at some point throughout the year, that rivalry would reach a boiling point. We would, you know, do some things that weren't exactly holy in the Catholic Church or anything like that. We would have this rivalry. It would boil up until one day we would finally decide at recess we would handle this like adults. Red Rover, on the playground, you know where to meet us. And at St. Joseph, there's this huge playground. And so that day, two uh, classes lined up in a line. And you know Red Rover. Uh, you have two lines where people are joined hands together uh, and, and you face each other. And the point is, is to beat the other team, you crash through the line. And once you crash through the line, if you crash through the line, you take one of the team, the team members of that team to your team. If you fail, you are now on their team. So this is how we would settle our rivalry. Fourth graders versus the fifth graders, we were the underdogs. And of course, I was on the fourth grader team on the underdog side. And of course, I was feeling a little cocky that day, a little confident. Again, me being the fourth grader that I was, not going to take any of, this, uh, any of this from the fifth graders. So we lined up. And across the way, we saw the biggest fifth grader of them all at the school. His name was Cody. And Cody, mind you, was in fifth grade, but he was the size of an eighth grader. Whenever we would see him walking in the halls, we would always part the ways so that he could get by, and we'd all be looking up at him. Probably, I'd still be looking at, up at him to this day, as Gray would highlight for you. But there was a distinct size differential. Legend has it that Cody at lunchtime on Fridays when we bring Papa John's pizza in for lunch didn't just get one or two slices, he got one or two pizzas. This is how big this kid was. He would later play offensive line or defensive line in football and become a football, a high school football coach. Good kid. Big kid. But this day I was feeling particularly cocky because I had my best friend in elementary school on one side and a good friend on the other side. And, and while we were small, we were still, you know, scrappy individuals. And so it was my turn and I said, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Cody on over. And you see across the way, Cody starts backing up like a bull begins to do his feet like that. And he comes charging. And secretly, I was hoping he was going to charge on the other side of the line. But guess where he's coming at after? me. So he comes charging headlong, and the collision is just like that. But me and my best friend, we held on for a good 10 to 15 feet after where we started, and we held the line. And so Cody, the biggest enemy of all, the biggest foe of all, was now on our side. Well, if only the world was a little bit more like the elementary school days. 
where you could just play a game of Red Rover and those people that are your foes, people that are your opponents could just finally be on your side if you win. If only there was a power that could change those opponents into allies. If only there was a power that could change those foes into families. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Well, Griff, I don't really have any enemies. I'm a good Christian person. I have no foes. I have no opponents. Well, I beg to differ. We all have those people. We all have those people that we have animosity towards. Maybe we don't hate them. Maybe we're not honest with ourselves about our hatred towards them. But we all have those people that we get angry at. Perhaps it's people that live right next door to us. Perhaps it's people that live in our same household. Perhaps it's people that we work with. Perhaps it's a certain demographic, a certain age group. Perhaps it's a certain kind of people because they talk differently than us. Perhaps because they didn't come from the same country that we are from. Perhaps, in some ways, as after the week that we have had, perhaps it's those people that you saw on Facebook this past week. People that were celebrating, but also people that were weeping. We all have foes. We all have opponents. We all have enemies. If only there was a way that we could make them family. Well, perhaps there is a power. A power that doesn't rest in us. A power that doesn't rest in our intellectual abilities. A power that doesn't rest in how well we know the Bible. A power that doesn't rest in how many right answers we can give in a certain kind of conversation. A power that doesn't rest in the values that we have, whether conservative or progressive. A power that exceeds all of that. A power that only belongs to one. A power that belongs to God. And so here today, we're going to take a look at that power at work. That power to change foes into families. And we're going to be taking a look at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. This is what Luke writes. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to this street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sights. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. 
who, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. In this text, we have a story of what the church calls conversion. And perhaps this is the most famous conversion story in Scripture. Perhaps it's the most famous conversion story in all of history. Whether you grew up in church, whether you had a a relationship with church that was a little rocky, maybe you just showed up at vacation Bible school on occasion, more than likely at some point you have likely heard this story. This story of how Saul became converted to Christ. We've already met Saul, but we are reintroduced to him here now. Saul, we were introduced to him back in Acts chapter 8. It was at the very end of the passage that Noah read last week where Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was being executed. People were throwing stones at him, and Saul was there witnessing this zealotry for the Judaism, and he was there holding their cloaks, approving of their killing of Stephen. And so sometime between chapter 8 and chapter 9, Saul took it upon himself to be a persecutor of the church. He would have said to be a purifier of the religion of Judaism. And so he goes around persecuting the church. He goes around arresting people that are associated with the way or the church for those who call on the name of Jesus Christ. He goes around arresting them so that someday they'll at least be thrown in jail, but if not, that they would be executed. Needless to say, Saul is an enemy of the church. He is an opponent. He is a foe. He is an antagonist toward the church. And so in this story, what we see is Saul is on his way to Damascus to continue his mission of persecuting the church, of purifying the Jewish faith. And all of his plans come to naught because, as so often happens, Jesus interrupts him. Jesus interrupts him on his way and cries out to him. And there's this whole vision that takes place. Saul is rendered blind and eventually to the point where his life is disoriented and then reoriented to Christ. He is, the end result is that he is converted to Christ and to Christ's mission. This is the conversion story of Acts. This is one of many, but this is the conversion story that many talk about. Conversion, this idea of change, is the business of God. This is what Jesus Christ does, is he brings about conversion and change. Now, perhaps you've heard people talk about conversion before, but perhaps you haven't heard it said as convert or convert or uh, conversion necessarily. 
Perhaps you've heard other people talk about it in other ways. Ways like saying that they are born again. Ways that they were saying that they were saved back when X happened. Perhaps that they talked about it with a fancy term saying that they were justified. That they were baptized. Or that they surrendered or gave their life over to Christ. Perhaps you've heard people use these phrases before. All of these are variations of this word conversion. And the idea of conversion rests in another biblical idea. It rests within this idea of repentance. Repentance, which comes from the word metanoia. This Greek word metanoia, that if you play around with it enough, you get this idea that it's the same roots as this word metamorphosis. That with repentance, with conversion, with metanoia, things change. You change from one state to another. You change from one thing to another. You change from one direction to another direction. This means that conversion is about change, about reorienting our life toward Jesus Christ. This conversion change is brought about with a personal relationship and a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. If the gospel is about anything, And there are a lot of people that will tell you that what the gospel is about. It's about love. It's about grace. It's about social justice. It's about biblical justice. It's about caring for the poor. If the gospel is about anything, it is about conversion. It is about changed minds and lives for Jesus Christ and his kingdom. If the gospel is about anything, it is about change. It is about conversion. It is about seeing God's power at work to change anybody, even people like Saul. Saul, who was an enemy of the church, a foe against God, to change him to be a part of the family with God. So this is what I want you to remember for this week. This is my bottom line for you, is conversion changes foes into family. Conversion changes foes into family. Conversion changes foes into family. N.T. Wright, who is an English bishop, and somebody, if you've had Bible study with me before, you've heard me reference him time and again. He writes many books. He writes a lot of great books. N.T. Wright has a helpful analogy when he talks about conversion. He says that conversion is a lot like waking up to an alarm clock. Now, many of you may have experienced this this morning, but for some of you, the alarm clock is your best friend. The alarm clock, when it goes off, whether it is the buzzer, whether it's the radio, whether it's on your phone and it's a ringtone, you wake up right away and you are wide awake, ready to go for the rest of the day. You have a clear direction. You have a clear picture of where you are going. And when that alarm goes off, you are changed from the state of being asleep to being wide awake, ready to go. He says that conversion is a lot like that, to where for some it is instantaneous. It happens in a moment. Things change drastically in just a brief moment. This is what we saw with Saul. A moment, a personal encounter, like an alarm clock that Saul all of a sudden woke up to and everything was changed entirely. However, There are others in the room where the alarm clock is not your best friend. 
to where it is, as I was describing the previous person, you were shaking your head like, those people need Jesus. <laughs> for you, the alarm clock is something that you use to forestall the inevitable of you having to wake up. And what you do is you hear the alarm clock again and again, and your favorite button on the alarm clock is not off, but snooze. Joe knows what we're talking about. Now you hit snooze over and over again, and you're somewhere in between being asleep and awake. You're not functional yet. You don't know where you are. You maybe know that you're in your bed somewhere, but you just don't know what the day holds. You don't know what day of the week it is. You don't even know what time it is. But he uses this analogy, N.T. Wright uses this analogy because sometimes conversion is more gradual. For some, it is like that alarm clock that we snooze over and over and over again till finally at some point at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, you're finally awake and ready to get your day started. For you, it's a gradual movement from being asleep to being awake. For some, it is your story is the story of Saul, where for you, your conversion was instantaneous. Sure, there was things to work out from that point on, but still. You know the time and the place. For others, their conversion is much more gradual. Conversion changes foes into family. Conversion is what God does. God does it for those who are against him, and God does it for those who go to church. You see, the famous story within this passage is the story of Saul and of his conversion. But we would be mistaken if we said that was the only conversion story in this passage. The first half of the passage dealt with Saul and Jesus, that vision that took place there. The second half of the passage was Jesus and this man named Ananias. Jesus calls out to this man in Damascus named Ananias. And perhaps Ananias wasn't just a Christian, but perhaps he was even a church leader. Some even say that he was one of the bishops, the first bishops of the church in Damascus. And so Ananias is, is this church leader who, who knows a little bit about Jesus. He hears this vision and he hears Jesus calling out to him and he says, Here I am, Lord. In other words, what do you, what do you need? What can I do for you? And Jesus says, Look, I've got a job for you. I need you to go outside of your house, go down uh, around the corner to the street called Straight, to the house of Judas, and there, there's going to be a person from Tarsus, and his name is Saul. I need you to go and take care of him and minister to him. And Ananias, being somebody who is in the know, says, Lord, I know that you're in heaven right now. You don't maybe know what's happening with the church right now, but Saul, he's not a good guy. He's public enemy number one of your church. He's arrested and executed a lot of people. You remember this guy named Stephen? He was there. So Ananias says, listen, this man is evil. You want nothing to do with him. And Jesus answers him and says, go. I have chosen this man for a purpose and for a mission. And give credit to Ananias. He goes. He, he is obedient to Jesus Christ to go to this house, even though there is a strong likelihood that Ananias might have known some of the people that Saul had arrested. He might have known some of the people that Saul had arrested and led to their execution. But nonetheless, Ananias goes to this house. And what we see is conversion take place for Ananias. 
Because in verse 13, when he is talking about Saul, he says, this man, this man who has done evil. But when he arrives at the house, he greets Saul and says, brother Saul. Conversion changes foes into family. This wasn't a power that Ananias possessed. This wasn't a power that uh, could be reached because he knows his Bible so well. This was a power that only God could bring about in Ananias. This was only a power, the same power that was at work in Saul to bring him from foe into family is the same power that is at work with Ananias to not look at those, uh, those people that are new to the church, to those who are entering the church despite their past as foes, but to see them as family. Conversion changes foes against God to be family with God. But it also changes us, those who have been in church all our life, to stop seeing so many people in the world as foes and begin to see them as family. So perhaps you don't have enemies Perhaps you don't have opponents, though, again, I would beg to differ. But nonetheless, for those of you who are here, for those of you who call yourself Christian, for those of you who are following in the steps of the way, Jesus is calling us to himself, and Jesus is calling us to love those that he loves. Loving Jesus is easy. It's easy to love a Savior that accepts us unconditionally, that accepts me unconditionally, that asks very little of me when I first encounter him. But as is with Jesus' way, Jesus never leaves us the same when we encounter him. He calls us to more. Loving Jesus is easy. Loving the people that Jesus loves is hard. In a church that I served many years ago, I was an intern there, and I served this church for a long time. I love this church to death, uh, but there was one Sunday where I had an encounter uh, that left me speechless. It was one of the Sundays that I was uh, assigned to preach, and uh, you know, in my humble opinion, it was the best sermon that I had ever preached at the time. And after the, church, after the church service, everybody else was agreeing with me. We were at the, the back of the church, and people were shaking my hand saying, Griff, that was the best sermon we've ever heard. You should be our pastor. You're going to be the next Billy Graham. I mean, all these wonderful compliments that are absolutely true, you know. So all these people are coming through and shaking my hand, complimenting me. And then there's one person that gets in line after all these people had come and gone, and she comes up to me and grabs my arm right around the elbow and says, Son, you know it's going to be good when they start with that. Son, I couldn't hear a word that you said. It's like, I'm sorry, did you need a hearing aid? I, I, I don't know what to say. Normally people say that I talk loud enough already. She says, Son, I couldn't hear a thing that you said because you weren't wearing a tie. Um, okay, 
And at this point, I'm a poor seminarian. I have one suit at most, and all the ties that I had were ties that I borrowed from my dad, and I really don't like wearing a tie all that much. Uh, I don't like wearing a suit more than anything else, so I compromised. I said, I'll wear a suit if I don't have to wear a tie. And she looked at me and said, I couldn't hear a word that you said because I could see your undershirt the whole time. (laughs) Kind of awkward that you're looking at me right there, but I was so mad. I was so mad. And she said, next time you get up to preach, you better wear a tie. And so I did. I did wear a tie the next time because I didn't want another encounter like that. But afterwards, when I got all my courage back to not say a single thing but yes, ma'am, to this woman, I marched downstairs where the pastor that I was serving with was. I marched down there into his office and I said, can you believe what this woman just did to me? Can you believe her? She just said that I couldn't hear a word that you said because I wasn't wearing a tie. And she, I, said, I went on to say things like, well, she's a, a modern-day Pharisee. She's legalistic. There's no grace in her life whatsoever. We don't need people like that in our church around here. And the pastor leaned back in his chair, and he said, well, Griff, do you know what she does during the week? I said, no. Hunt down people that aren't wearing ties? I don't know. He says, well, she's retired, and she serves in our soup kitchen practically every single day. And not only that, but she is one of the biggest contributors to our soup kitchen. While we are trying to get all these other people in our church to care for the poor, this person has the biggest heart for the poor that you will ever see. Well, okay. He he looked at me and he said, loving Jesus is easy, Griff. Preaching sermons about Jesus is easy. But at some point, you're going to have to learn to love those people that Jesus loves. And within the church, within the world, that's hard. Because Christians, just like anybody else, are filled with contradictions. They are filled with hypocrisy. They are filled with troubles that bubble up every so often. But as a pastor, you have got to learn how to love them. I would modify what he told me a little bit. I would say, as a Christian, if we are to follow Jesus, we are going to have to learn to love those people that today, this very day, we consider foes, enemies, antagonists within our story. Conversion changes foes into family. 